Latin America is home to just 8% of the world's population, but has suffered nearly a third of all COVID-19 deaths. Brazil is the worst affected country. There has been a seven-fold increase in deaths reported in the last one month in India. India has seen more than 50,000 deaths in the last 20 days alone. All right, so back to the coronavirus, uh, taking you to South Africa, where the country is struggling through a devastating second wave of COVID-19 infections. Now that some countries have started to roll out the coronavirus vaccine, you might be asking yourself, when will I be able to get one? If you live in Africa, the answer for the moment is not yet. While it may feel like the end of the pandemic in wealthy countries, the world's middle income and poor regions are still not in the clear, which means none of us are. Nobody is safe until everyone is safe. It's our obligation to get our vaccines to everyone around the world who needs one. I'm Michelle McMurray-Heath, and you are listening to I Am Bio. We talk a lot about national herd immunity goals, and every day we inch closer to realizing that goal here in the United States. But what about global herd immunity? Without it, stronger variants of COVID may still threaten the entire globe's recovery. The question on everyone's mind now is, how do we get vaccines distributed equitably around the globe? You know, the vast majority of, of vaccine that has been distributed has gone to high-income countries. And the countries in North America and Europe, you know, were the first to have really severe waves of the pandemic. And, and so one might argue that that's understandable. But, you know, in India, we're now seeing a less well-resourced country, you know, really, really crumbling under a, a tremendous outbreak. This is Richard Hatchett. CEO of the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, or CEPI, a global vaccine procurement initiative. And I think the concern, obviously, is, is that what we're seeing in India could be replicated around the world. We need to begin as quickly as we possibly can distributing vaccine to all countries to protect their healthcare workers, you know, protect their healthcare systems, which are fragile to begin with and to protect their most vulnerable populations. And I think for the time being, the first thing that that means is the countries that have excess supply, that have enough vaccine ordered to vaccinate their population two, three, four times over, need to start sharing vaccine globally to protect the most vulnerable. Which is exactly what many U.S. companies want to do, share their vaccines. However, as BIO's Deputy Chief of Policy and Chief of International Affairs, Joe DeMond, explains, it's not quite as easy as packaging them up on a plane or boat. A number of uh, governments around the world have policies, including the United States, that make it nearly impossible to uh, export excess vaccine supply. So we actually have a surplus of vaccine supply here in the U.S., and many of the companies would like to be able to share those vaccines with other countries around the world, but actually uh, arrangements with the U.S. government or rules that we are following, have to follow, prevent us from um, exporting those to other countries. The United States and other countries need to lift those types of trade restraints so that the vaccines can flow more freely around the world. And we're working with the World Trade Organization on this 
um, remove trade barriers, promote trade facilitation, remove customs barriers, so that free, promote the free flow of goods across borders to, to facilitate and expedite that vaccine production. I think we also do need to look at how vaccine manufacturing is distributed globally. And currently, there are only a few centers of vaccine development globally, North America, Europe, India, and China. And those centers have very large populations. We need more equitable distribution of vaccine manufacturing as soon as possible, but also for long-term security. Bios Jodaman focused on an additional problem related to manufacturing that could hamper the availability of vaccines globally, and that is the supply chain. What we're starting to notice are bottlenecks in the supply of raw materials for vaccines, which are sourced from, again, from all over the world. And so that even if the manufacturing is being done uh, largely here in the U.S. and in a few other countries, those vaccine suppliers are increasingly facing shortages, or potentially facing shortages of some of those materials. And we need to identify, working with governments, to identify what those bottlenecks are, in some cases to build additional capacity for some of those raw materials, which could be very mundane things like lab materials that just uh, plastic bags and and, uh, things like that, that are used in manufacturing vaccines. We need to identify those bottlenecks and then also, again, um, allow the trade to flow between countries so that the the vaccine manufacturers who need the most uh, can get them and, and, and continue to increase their output. In a letter to the president, Bio laid out some of the recommendations that both Richard and Joe are talking about, and we urge the administration to implement and support broader global initiatives, such as preventive measures. We call our recommendations the Global Share Program, a strategy for harnessing access and reaching everyone. Within hours of sending the letter to the president, we were stunned to learn that President Biden supported the TRIPS waiver, a proposal by some countries in the World Trade Organization that would suspend intellectual property or IP protections for vaccines to fight the pandemic. The TRIPS waiver would require companies who invented these life-saving vaccines to do more than just surrender their intellectual property or the recipe that makes their vaccines work to the global market, but it would also require them to provide technical assistance and share trade secrets. Although we are steadfast in our belief that everything possible should be done to get vaccines distributed globally as quickly as possible, this is not the way to do it. What's needed is for the U.S. to step up to its plate and make sure that it contributes to international efforts to get poor countries' vaccines for free, for example, through COVAX, and also to make sure that we are not limiting the export of either vaccines or the raw materials needed for vaccine manufacturers around the globe to complete their commitment to make more COVID vaccines. Like the administration, obviously, I believe we should do everything within our power to safely vaccinate uh, our own population against COVID and then to help other countries, especially developing countries. The real question is, what's the most effective way to do this? And IP is really the lifeblood of our innovation sector. So can you help me understand in your um, decision to for your trips waiver decision, 
How much consideration did you give to other courses of action, like allowing uh, American companies to maintain IP control and maybe let them do the manufacturing and distributing? And, you know, were there other alternatives and how did they rack and stack with, uh, again, against the TRIPS waiver decision? That was Florida Democratic Representative Stephanie Murphy pressing U.S. Trade Ambassador Catherine Tai in a recent 2021 trade policy agenda hearing. This is one of those things that sounds like a great idea on paper, but falls apart on closer examination. Joe Damon takes us under the hood. No, we don't think that proposed uh, solution is any solution at all. First of all, intellectual property rights or the sharing of intellectual property rights have not been the problem uh, in getting vaccine sources around the world. In fact, our companies, the ones located in the U.S. and other and elsewhere, have um, already concluded over 250 partnerships with other manufacturers around the world. So there is a lot of technology sharing already going on, and we've identified, I think, most of the best Uh, nearly all of the best uh, capacity around the world has already been identified and people are um, have quickly arranged deals to get them up to speed and and manufacturing vaccines. IP has not really been a barrier. But in addition, it's not just that it won't solve the problem, but that it could actually be harmful in um, hindering companies and governments that are trying to solve the problem. Um, What this, what this waiver of, of, um, of intellectual property rights would do is send a signal to countries around the world that they should try to also get into the manufacturing business and that they should be able to demand both patents and other technological know-how trade secrets from companies and demand that they manufacture in their country. After a quick break, we'll be right back. BioDigital is just around the corner. We have an exciting lineup of speakers, including Sanjay Gupta, Anthony Fauci, Nobel laureate Jennifer Doudna, and many more. Take advantage of this unparalleled opportunity to network and hear from thought leaders from across the industry. There's still time to register. Go to bio.org events. Why is intellectual property so important to innovators? We asked a biotech investor what he thought about the TRIPS waiver. Brad Lonker is the CEO of Lonker Investments, which invests in cancer therapies. And the problem is, if you cancel out the IP on one medicine, you may call it an extreme circumstance, but it makes investors call into question the IP protection of all others. And so I think the messaging around the, the TRIPS waiver announcement itself, uh, just the fact that it, it was being spoken about in the way it was, can potentially be very damaging because it can hurt the confidence in not just the intellectual property protection of the vaccines, but other medicines. So biotech is one of the, the riskiest sectors there is to invest in because biology is difficult. And so when we look for investments, we also look for things that potentially have a very high return on investment. We know that not everything that we invest in is going to succeed, 
And so it's important for us that when an investment and a new medicine does succeed, that there's a future payoff. So the ones I really worry about are not the vaccine companies or the large pharmaceutical companies who this seems to be directed at and and where where all the talk around it um, is pointed towards. It's really the smaller companies um, that over the long term are going to be most impacted by it. And I think that's a real shame. Some have argued that much of the innovation for COVID vaccines was actually the result of funding from the U.S. government, and therefore the technology should be widely available. Joe addresses this point. That's a complete misnomer, a complete exaggeration. So let me just say that, first of all, if we're, especially if we're talking about the technologies that went into developing these COVID vaccines like mRNA, as I said, those have been years and years in the making, and they set the stage for being able to make a, a COVID vaccine very quickly. But the amount of private sector investment that went into that dwarves the amount of, of money that the U.S. government has put in in just the last year. But the U.S. government, and in addition to it, not only does it just dwarf the total amount the U.S. government has put in, but much of the U.S. government money was not spent on developing intellectual property rights. It was spent on scale, and, and that's important because the U.S. government doesn't own the IP if it's not spending the money on the IP either. As a matter of fact, the 40-year-old Bayh-Dole Act ensures that the investment the government makes in foundational science actually results in cures. How? It empowers companies to take ownership of these discoveries and turn them into tested and approved products. Otherwise, much of this important research would go no further than a government lab, which would be a disservice to the patients waiting for the cures. Betsy DePerry is a survivor of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Listen to her story. So I was diagnosed in January of 2002 with an incurable form of non-Hodgkin lymphoma. And at the time, chemotherapy was really my only option, but it would knock back the disease, but invariably it would come back and remission periods between treatments would decrease. So at the time, the median diagnosis or the median time from diagnosis to death was eight years. So I started treatment, my disease progressed right through the first one, it had to be stopped. A stronger one immediately followed, again, my disease raged on. And so it was pretty tough. I mean, it was definitely fast tracking me to the short side of the medium lifespan. And lucky for me, and I always tell this story, while my hair was departing my head and I was vacationing in the hospital with lots of chemo related side effects, the FDA approved radiotherapy, and I literally was able to get it in the nick of time. So, you know, I, and that's been 18 years. So it, it's remarkable. But again, it goes back to the Bayh-Dole Act really laid the foundation for that drug to be developed. I would not be here today without it. It's just that simple. Patent protections save lives. Brad further elaborates that the TRIPS waiver would erode investor confidence while producing zero results. If we thought that what waving a magic wand and with this announcement would cause there to be abundant vaccine supplies around the world, then this would be an entirely different discussion. But 
The problem is the thing that's holding back vaccine supply around the world is is not intellectual property protection. In fact, one of the messenger RNA companies, Moderna, voluntarily waived their IP on the vaccine issue months ago. The thing that's holding it back is these vaccines have been developed with groundbreaking new technologies that companies have been working for decades on, and that expertise can't be gained overnight. And so even if you waive the IP protection for these things, uh, you still have years of learning for a newcomer to really understand how to how to develop and manufacture these things. And so, you know, every decision in life is risk versus reward. And, and the fact that this was discussed and that the United States surprisingly said that it wouldn't stand up for intellectual property protection can have very serious long-term damages to the biotech sector, regardless of what happens with the vaccines. The other thing that I don't think policymakers and maybe the general public really appreciate when it comes to this is the companies that will be most harmed by something like this are not the large companies. And, you know, like the large pharmaceutical companies, you know, you hear this term big pharma a lot, you know, in, in a negative context. Big pharma isn't going to be impacted by this. They're going to live on no matter what future environments look like. And even the mRNA vaccine companies, they're going to be busy selling their vaccines for years, if not decades to come, and harnessing that technology for, for many diff different uses. So they'll be fine. The companies that are really affected by talk and decision like this are the ones that are really living on the edge. The companies that are really going to be impacted by this are the smaller ones that invest in that that require in investor capital. The fact that we may be living in an environment where intellectual property is not sacrosanct it means that the risk of investing in this sector period increases. And when the risk of investing something increases, that means that fewer companies are going to benefit from investor capital. So we've learned that wealthier countries like the U.S. must share. But we can do that without crumbling a system that incentivized an industry to produce life-saving vaccines in record time. We are fighting so that our small biotechs will reach the same heights when the next pandemic arrives. We urge anyone who wants this pandemic to genuinely be over to fight with us as well. In our conversation with CEPI's Richard Hatchett, he talked about the organization COVID-19 Global Vaccine Access Program, known as COVAX, as one critical way we can get vaccines to all who need them. First, COVAX uh, needs to be fully funded so that we can deliver on our promise to, to procure and deliver $2 billion doses of vaccine in 2021 and, and, and continue that into 2022. As Joe DeMond explained, once we adjust trade barriers, vaccines can travel more easily. The reality is that we've identified that the current manufacturers of vaccines that are already online today will be able to manufacture about 11 billion 
vaccines this year alone and then more next year. That's a much faster way to scale up vaccines, uh, menu, uh, sourcing, and then getting it to patients around the world who need them. And last, we need to explore lessons learned from broader initiatives, such as the President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief, or PEPFAR. That initiative taught us that White House leadership, close coordination with global allies, and investment in developing countries for product access are crucial to global success against a spreading emerging infectious disease. Because the fact is, this pandemic most likely won't be the last. And our solution can't be removing the very IP protections that created these life-saving vaccines in the first place. You asked about the end game for the virus. I'm afraid there there really isn't an end game. I, I think COVID is going to be an endemic disease globally for the foreseeable future. And I think we're going to have to learn to coexist with it. And I think that actually presents one of the ongoing challenges for vaccine development. Thank you so much to all of today's guests. To learn more about intellectual property and biotechnology, please visit bio.org. Normally, we would have a preview of the next episode, but on June 7th, we'll be right in the thick of BioDigital. So we'll catch up with you for a special convention episode of the podcast on June 14th. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and or review. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at I Am Biotech. And subscribe to Good Day Bio at bio.org slash goodday. This episode was developed by executive producer Teresa Brady and producers Connor McCoy, Cornelia Poku, and Marilyn Sawyer. It was engineered and mixed by Jess Fenton theme music created by Luke Smith and Sam Brady.